Hello everyone, it's Tom Slater here, editor of Spiked. We've got a typically brilliant episode of the Spiked podcast for you today. But before we do that, I just want to let you know about an exciting new development over at the Spiked website. And that is our newly relaunched, newly revamped online donor community, where people who donate to Spiked on a monthly basis or on an annual basis can enjoy all kinds of exclusive perks. And if you're not already a Spike donor, you will be at the end of this spiel. So as many of you will know, Spike is completely free to read, to listen to our podcast, to watch our videos. And the reason we do that is because we want anyone anywhere to be able to read us, to hear us, to listen to our arguments. But in order to keep Spikes free and fearless and independent with no paywall in our way or no corporate paymasters to answer, we do call on our loyal readers and listeners and viewers to support us in whatever way they can, particularly with one of those regular donations. It's really that which allows us not only to survive, but to thrive. And as a small token of our appreciation, we have our brilliant online donor community, which, as I say, has got all kinds of brilliant new perks added to it. So now for as little as £5 a month, you can read Spikes completely ad-free as well as get involved in our comment section, come to exclusive online events, get discounts in our shop and much else. We also have a higher tier donors now where you can access exclusive in-person events and dinners with the Spike team, as well as get a free signed copy of every Spike book that we bring out. So if it sounds like something you want to get involved with, please do have a look today. Just go over to spiked-online.com forward slash support. That's spiked-online.com forward slash support. Thanks so much. We really wouldn't be here without you. And now on with the show. Hello and welcome back to the Spike podcast. I'm Fraser Myers. With me this week, as ever, we have Spike's editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And delighted to have back uh, GB News journalist, Charlie Peters. Good to see you. Coming up on today's show, the BBC's war on disinformation. I speak to Billboard Chris about the harms gender ideology is doing to children. And we'll discuss the endless scandals plaguing the Tories. So the BBC has launched a new project called BBC Verify. Its aim is to counter disinformation on the web and to increase trust in the BBC's own journalism by showing off some of the techniques it uses to verify various videos and various content that comes up online. Now, Tom, I think it's fair to say the BBC has been a bit obsessed with disinformation for a while. This isn't their first rodeo here. The Verify project brings together all these other existing teams, um, be, you know, that deal exactly with disinformation. They have um, quite famously a specialist disinformation reporter called Mariana Spring. I mean, why are they so concerned about this? What, what is it all about? Well, I think it's become an obsession, not just with the BBC, but a lot of the mainstream media, corporate press with misinformation and fact checking. It's a, it's a very post-2016 phenomenon because mm. without wanting to impute uh, motives on part of the people involved in this particular BBC project, there has been a general mood, which is that um, the reason that Trump and Brexit happened, the reason that things have gone haywire politically, as they would say it, is because there's just bullshit merchants out there who are being able to tell their lies unchallenged. It's a very simplistic kind of view they have of how these things came about. Um, and so you've had this kind of growth in this entire industry of fact checkers, mm. of um, disinformation experts of one kind or another. And obviously on, it's a tricky issue to talk about because on the one hand, of course, there will always be a role for journalism 
in terms of getting to the truth, of fact-checking. Yeah. Um, BBC Monitoring, for example, does a lot of great work, feeds into a lot of what the government does and so on. But there's this other layer who are much more shallow, much more given to the kind of prejudices that I was sort of alluding to earlier, like the Mariana Springs, who I think have imbibed, whether they realise it or not, a very politicised idea of what misinformation and policing it means. It's, mm. you know, I mean, throughout her various kind of documentaries about Twitter and online moderation and the fact that she's getting trolled all the time or whatever, she's basically been campaigning for online censorship. She might not realise that's the case, but that's what she's been doing. And so that's the really pernicious thing, is that this always presents itself essentially as, you know, who could be against uh, the truth? Yeah. Who could be against rebutting lies? But there is this layer of it which has always been much more politicised. And labelling something misinformation is basically just a way of saying this is a political opinion which is illegitimate. Yeah. And the, and the BBC have, have crossed that boundary time and time again over the last couple of years, definitely. I mean, that's the issue, isn't it, Charlie? Because there are things that are true that have been labelled misinformation and there are things that are false that don't get labelled misinformation by the BBC. I mean, I'm thinking of... Um, for instance, if you, if you take the people campaigning against ULES or against their local 15-minute sure. city, they're conspiracy theorists because they've used the word climate lockdown or something like that. I mean, that might not be precisely what's going on, but they're just expressing their anger. Or hyperbole is hyperbole misinformation. Hyperbole is misinformation. Yeah. <laughs> or, you, or you get the, you know, on the other side, you have the BBC, you go on their website and they will say if a, you know, a, a man has committed a horrific crime, but he happens to wear a dress. It's a woman. <laughs> there we it's go. a woman. Yeah, and, sure. and I've read all about all these men getting pregnant on the BBC as well. Outrageous business. How do they keep getting away with it? Um, yeah, this journalism is more instructional than it is information mm. they are it's it's i call it whiteboard journalism okay here are the acceptable opinions that we've written down today if you stray from this then you are a conspiracy theorist and you are engaging in disinformation and misinformation these two concepts obviously mean different things but people involved in discussing them blur them together they yeah. think that getting things wrong or pursuing an idea or reading something which the bbc or other organizations might disagree with that is a, a chaotic and dangerous thing to do this is a very very damaging way of looking at news and free speech and commentary. And you know, Tom touched it right at the beginning, but this definitely happened in reaction to 2016 mm. and the general global populist revolt that has been happening since. I mean, people always talk about Brexit and Trump, but this, this happens also you know, in South America, El Salvador and Brazil, there have been significant reactions against you know, decades of institutions not fulfilling their promises to the people. And the reaction to that failure has not been from many journalists in the establishment to say, what's gone wrong here? Why are these people so angry? It's to say, they're very stupid and they've been misled by things on Twitter. Yeah. This is palpably untrue. I mean, while there may be a few wackos out there who share crazy theories here and there, generally speaking, the standard of information that most people have is much higher nowadays than it was before 2016. I, I believe that very sincerely. And um, a failure to introspectively understand why these people are you know, so opposed to these institutions and instead pushing this misinformation label is only going to make the problem worse. Yeah, I mean, isn't that the issue, Tom? It just sort of defends the status quo ultimately a lot of the time. No, definitely. It's a, it's an attempt to deal with this political challenge as if it's like a kind of cancer that you can cut out. It's just wrong. It's misinformation. It's horrible. It's illegitimate. And therefore, we don't have to think about any of the implications, as you were saying there, Charlie. What's, what's interesting, though, and we've already touched on this, but how so many of these institutions, these elite institutions, journalistic outlets, which are so preoccupied with the idea that dangerous, over-the-top narratives are taking hold amongst the population are involved in spreading some of the most dangerous over-the-top notions which are taking hold in some sections yeah. of the population so for instance and you wrote about this in your piece this week 
the things that the BBC puts out about climate is a good example. Their own climate editor, Justin Rowlett, made a panorama documentary, I think, yeah. in which he said in one of the opening frames that more and more people are dying as a result of climate. This is 180 degrees, not, not the case. Yeah. No, the opposite is true. <laughs> <Yeah>. Climate-related <laughs> deaths have fell by, what, like 90-something yeah. percent over the course of the past century. And yet he's saying the complete opposite. He ended up being reprimanded by uh, the BBC Complaints Commission. So, you know, the uh, the system works in that instance. But that wasn't a uh, unusual overstep. Yeah. And we have all these young people who genuinely think that the world is going to end mm. within their lifetime. No one at the IPCC or anywhere else believes that. Yeah. But, but in those cases, the, the narrative, the absurd narrative is fine mm. because politically they kind of agree with the drift of it. So, yeah. you know, people would have a lot more respect for these disinformation correspondents or these, um, again, these various different projects that they cook up if they were consistent, but they're not. And we say that all the time. Yeah, you, and you could say similar things about some of the identity politics narrative. You know, the idea that the world has never been more racist, mm. that hate crime is constantly soaring and um, everyone is, you know, it's impossible to be an ethnic minority person nowadays or homophobia is going through the roof. It's when everyone's life experience would tell you that's yeah. not true, if nothing else. Yeah, I mean, in my own experience, this conspiracy theory narrative, I found um, even my own work slandered as conspiratorial mm. when it's you know, undoubtedly based in serious objective analysis. I mean, um, in the film I produced earlier this year on the grooming gang scandal, for example, not a, I, I couldn't find a single serious journalist who'd written about it before who takes a, a different view, who wanted to respond to any of the claims we made. But when the government reacted to the film and the campaign in April announcing a, a new set of policies, Many people were very quick to, to rush out and, and make all sorts of very fake claims about the nature of grooming gangs in the last few decades. I did not see Mariana Spring rushing, mm. rushing to correct her own department or indeed uh, other journalists um, throughout the establishment who made you know, ludicrous claims about the nature of grooming gangs, claiming, oh, they're most commonly white when the prosecution data shows that the opposite is true. That's, that's absolutely not the case you can make. And a, a complete failure to investigate or discuss this narrative, I think cuts right to the heart of how so many of these so-called misinformation mm. reporters are essentially politically motivated gatekeepers of what is acceptable in discussion. And that's why it's so important that we sort of take it on because it is one of the most obvious fronts in mm. the new censorship. Yeah. The way in which that you have these self-appointed misinformation, disinformation experts being appointed to various positions in government or be getting the job at Facebook to, you know, say what isn't isn't true. And this should worry us almost more than other th forms of it because it's people who are basically being empowered to rule on what is right and wrong, what is true and false. It's a ministry of truth. Exactly. And so for us to, you know, we can't let this whole industry, and it is an industry now, just sort of carry on unchallenged because as Charlie was saying, its biases are obvious at this point. Up next, I spoke to Billboard Chris about the harms gender ideology is doing to children. So I'm delighted to be joined by Chris Elston, better known as Billboard Chris. Chris has been travelling around the world uh, wearing a sandwich board with a very intriguing message saying children cannot consent to puberty blockers. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure to be here. First of all, uh, could you tell us a little bit about your campaign and why you started it? Sure. So for... Two years and eight months now, I think, I've been on a mission to create awareness, mainly by having conversations and starting conversations about what I consider to be the biggest child abuse scandal in modern medicine history. I go outside, 
And I'm sure I look ridiculous, but I wear signs. I'm like a human billboard or a human sandwich board. And the sign on my front usually says, children cannot consent to puberty blockers. And the one on my back is a little more playful. It's my definition of a dad, which is a human male who protects his kids from gender ideology. And I just have conversations with people. I go to busy downtown centers. I go to university campuses. These days, I do a lot of media and things behind the scenes. But I'm just helping to raise awareness about why no children are born in the wrong body. This gender ideology business is teaching our kids that just because they don't conform to sexist regressive stereotypes, that there must be something wrong with them, that they might be trans and they need to medically transition. And we need to put a stop to this whole thing. Was there anything in particular that made you feel, you know, um, lots of people tweet about this issue, lots of people write articles about it. What, what made you think, actually, I've got to put myself on the line. I've got to get out there on the streets. Well, a secondary part of my campaign really is about freedom of speech because people are afraid to talk about this issue. People are getting fired from their jobs. Sometimes they're losing their children. I've been arrested twice. I know a father in Canada who was sent to jail for six months for speaking out against the transition of his own daughter. But really, I just felt I had to get out into the real world, out of our echo chambers, because we're still human beings, just like we evolved, just like we've existed for a couple hundred thousand years. We need to talk face to face with people. And I think we think we're getting things done when we talk about this on social media, but we're just reaching the same people over and over. So I knew that going out into the real world would uh, inspire other people to talk about this. It would reach people who would never hear about this otherwise. And sometimes events happen when you're outside doing this and you end up reaching 100,000 or a million or more at a time. So it's been very effective. And in a sense, I see uh, your uh, movement, your protests as um, almost complementary to the Let Women Speak movement. Um, would you would you yeah. agree that way you have lots of um, women talking about how gender ideology affects them and your focus is on children? You know, why do you, th why do you think it's so important to tackle gender ideology where children are concerned? This is the major, this is the biggest issue, for sure. What's mm. happening with women is terrible. But we have hundreds of thousands of children who've been led to believe they're born in the wrong body and that they need to block their physical development, block puberty, get the opposite sex's hormones, and even get surgeries. And this is causing irreversible harm. So there's nothing more important than our kids. And this issue captures everybody. It captures people of all faiths, male, female, it doesn't matter. When parents learn what's going on, especially about what's happening to, the, to our kids and how they're getting indoctrinated, just that is psychologically abusive. But when parents learn what's going on, it lights this fire inside of them. And when they really start to understand this, they will never unlearn it and they'll never stop talking about it. So I know we're going to end this child abuse one of these days. It's just a question of how many kids are harmed before we do. What do, you, what do you say to the people who might say, well, look, the experts say this is the right thing to do for children, for children <laughs> who are uh, suffering from, from gender dysphoria. All these, all these medical bodies um, say otherwise. What do, you, what do you know as a parent, for instance? Experts. The same experts that told us masking our kids uh, for two years was helping them. These people aren't experts. These are ideologues. Mm. And the actual experts are people like Dr. Hillary Cast, who did a review of the Tavistock and found that there's no evidence to support what we're doing to children. It's a total mess. We had activist organizations taking over the directions for medical professionals. You had mermaids in England 
telling doctors at the Tavistock how to do their job. All of these kids have some other mental health comorbidity going on. They've got autism, about half of them. 35% of the Tavistock had moderate to severe autism. When you include the mild cases, it goes about 50. These are kids who've suffered abuse or trauma or sexual abuse. There's eating disorders. Who knows what's going on with these kids? These are children in distress. Children in foster care are wildly overrepresented. And we shouldn't just be treating them as though gender is the underlying cause of all of their problems, which is what's been going on all across the Western world. But we now have England, Norway, Sweden, Finland, where the medical bodies have looked at the evidence, they've conducted a systematic review and found there is no evidence to support this. It's not improving their mental health. So what are we doing trying to change the bodies of children just because they might be gender nonconforming? Some of these kids might just grow up to be gay. We know from all of the academic studies into gender, dys into gender dysphoria that a lot of these kids grew up to be gay. Now we're sterilizing gay and autistic kids? This is totally nuts. Now, you're drawing attention to a really serious scandal, but I think it's fair to say that the reaction isn't always positive. Fuck you! Fuck you! Fuck you! Fuck you! Fuck you! Some people react quite violently to your message. I mean, how do you account for that? And, you know, tell us a little bit about some of those experiences as well. Sure, I've had my arm broken by Antifa in Montreal. I've been assaulted probably 40, 50 times now when you include people spitting at me. I've been arrested twice after getting assaulted. I've been mobbed by 200 university students. All sorts of crazy things happen when you're out on the street. But these people just want to use violence to silence. The one thing that these activists, these trans activists can't endure is a conversation. So they try anything to stop it. I've had university students come out of their dorm rooms and hold up their bed sheets around me so that people can't see me. They play music, they blow whistles, whatever they can. They literally will stand right in front of me, six inches in front of me, while I'm having a conversation to stop me from talking to someone because they just can't stomach that we're having a calm, rational conversation about this. And why can't we have a conversation about things that are causing irreversible harm to kids? We should be able to talk about this. And, and recently you were, you were in Ireland and you even had an uh, altercation with the police. Can you tell us uh, how that went down? Yeah, apparently someone from the Disney store called. I'm not even sure I believe him, but apparently someone from the Disney store called and said I had been inside the store, which of course I hadn't been. I wouldn't do something that ridiculous. I had walked by the store. It's on the street, the main street. I was on Grafton Street in Ireland. And this police officer came out. And he hadn't reviewed the CCTV footage, of course. If he had, we wouldn't have had any problem. So I told him, please go look at the footage and come back. But he was very obstinate. He kept coming back to this point that I'd been inside the Disney store, which I hadn't been. And then he told me if I went near the Disney store, if I approached the Disney store, mm. he would arrest me. Because my words on my sign could cause offense. Children cannot consent to puberty blockers and my definition of a dad. This could cause offense. And he wrongly cited Section 7 of some criminal code. He got it completely wrong. Yeah. But he said that just a causing offense to someone is an arrestable offense. And I said, well, I could have a sign that said, I think Ireland is beautiful. And someone might take offense to that. Would you arrest them? So this wasn't a police officer on this day. This was a thought police officer. And I don't take too kindly to these sort of police officers. And I pushed back. And that video went viral. It had 5 million views because... Everyone can see this is totally ridiculous. I'm just out there having calm conversations and a man's threatening to arrest me because I think we shouldn't be sterilizing kids. <laughs> and, um, and finally, you know, you've been touring around the UK. 
Um, Britain has got a bit of a reputation um, for pushing back against trans ideology. Some people even call it Turf Island. Yeah. Um, do you think uh, we're on the right track here? Or what have you made of your, your visit and, and, and the people you've met? Yeah, 100%. I've had such a warm welcome. Of course, the more controversial conversations or the hostile people, those are the ones that always get the most views. But 95% of the people I talked to are overwhelmingly supportive. I was on the streets of Edinburgh for three hours yesterday before I went to Glasgow, and I didn't have one negative comment. So it's primarily just the young people who have been indoctrinated by this. And I do show those videos when they get hostile with me because I think it's important for people to see the level of indoctrination that's occurred. Because people don't understand how widespread this is. As soon as I started going out on the street, I saw this, especially with young women. They're the ones who've really been hurt by this. They know a lot of friends who've transitioned. And so what this ideology does is it preys on their empathy because they want everyone to live a wonderful life, as do we. Mm. But they've been fed these lies that children are born in the wrong body. And that's just complete nonsense. They've been fed these lies that kids will kill themselves if we don't let them transition and the puberty blockers are reversible. So the UK has been wildly successful in pushing back against a lot of this. But I do think there needs to be more focus on what's happening to kids. Having said that, they've had great success with the Tavistock. But I think in terms of awareness, people still don't really understand how widespread this ideology is. Do you think it can be beaten? 100%. We have the truth on our side. They have nothing but lies. So they've had hundreds of millions of pounds pushing this ideology into society. But we have the truth on our side. And the truth spreads for free. So I'm just going to keep spreading it. Bill Wood, Chris, thank you very much. Thank you. So it's been... Um... A uh, torrid week in British politics. Uh, if you've been watching TV or been reading the newspapers, you'll have seen wall-to-wall coverage of apparently the worst scandals since Watergate or Iran-Contra. Um, Boris Johnson may have met his mother at Chequers during the <laughs> lockdown. And um, Suella Braverman, our fascist home secretary. Cruella. Uh, Cruella. Cruella uh, has um, been given a speeding ticket. Um Charlie, what do you make of these monsters? Ah, oh, yeah. Well, it's, <laughs> Lay into them. Uh, right, Go on, let's give them what they want. <laughs> yeah, this is this is the resistance in uh, in the spiked office there. <laughs> hey, look, I mean, it's 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 high vis politics, right? It's yellow jacketed. You can't do that. You can't say that kind of politics. Where we have. Um, well, it was a Tory MP, right, who said in Parliament today, you know, scandals used to be about sex and, and ministers invading Iraq <laughs> uh, on the basis of lies and killing Where hundreds of thousands of people. And prostitutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. Where, where's all that madness? And instead, it's just, uh, oh, Suella Brevman sought private advice about how she might deal with um, a speeding fine. Could she seek, you know, she asked the civil servant, am I allowed to speak? Can I do this in private or do I have to do it as a class? I would say quite a legitimate request to make, considering you're the Home Secretary, you not, you might want to have specific security place in concern, all, all that kind of stuff. Um, this is being treated as, you know, the most scandalous move by a minister in decades. I think, I think part of the reason why so many journalists are keen to run this line and why the media kind of goes wild with it is because they're still running on the high of the end of the, the Boris Johnson era, the scalp hunting era, when they realized, you know, journalists were in charge for that, that two week madness when everyone was dropping out and, you know, ministers were signing on for five minutes and then taking the pay cut right after. Um, 
the same kind of thing is still happening now. And, and because when Rishi Sunak came into power uh, last year, he said in his big speech outside Downing Street, when he took office saying, my, my premiership will be governed by values and standards. Yeah. And so whenever there's the slightest hint of, I mean, they call it sleaze in all these stories. It's not sleaze, it's just small discussions. And um, whenever that happens, journalists will say, you know, despite Rishi Sunak promising to discuss the high levels of professionalism in his service. And then it allows them to use that as a sort of news hook for the most minute, pointless, pointless stories. Inflation running at 10%, migration over 600,000, but instead the front pages are Swella Braverman spoke to an official. There was even a point this week where someone tried to make a scandal out of the fact that Suella Braverman was involved in a charity in Rwanda, yeah. and that might have coloured her view of the country. Um, in relation to the Rwanda scheme, even though she didn't set up the scheme. Yeah, no, it was ridiculous. I mean, and you could see actually as the week was bearing on that um, the civil servants who were obviously leaking these stories to the media were just almost turning up the temperature. They, yeah. they felt like a resignation or an ousting was in the offing. There was one, the stories got quite bitchy. There was one about how we have to fact check her in cabinet meetings. It's like this sort of thing yeah. where you just sort of think it, the, the dynamic is so clear now, which is the fact that there are people in the civil ser service who obviously don't like a vast array of Tory ministers for quite obvious reasons. And they know that particularly because the government is pretty weak, it's pretty um, incapable of standing up for itself. It's electoral mandate such as it is, is sort of withering away. And so they can leak, turn up the pressure quite easily. I mean, it was interesting that Sunak actually stuck by Braverman in this case, but I think he almost had no option given the fact that he's been accused of being too weak by his own backbenchers for so long. But it was it's just so transparent now that that unholy alliance between kind of miffed civil servants who are upset that, that, that Labour's not in power or something, um, and members of the media who basically have the same view, uh, can just kind of oust ministers at will. And this is a really bad dynamic and it's it's fascinating that it's had off the back of increasingly minor issues like people talk about the ministerial code like it's magna carta or something <laughs> this was written in 1997 and um there's a good piece of service if i'm about this it's so broad as to be basically unenforceable it 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 you know, essentially makes leaking to the press something that ministers shouldn't do. No minister who served in the modern era would meet that standard. Yeah. But again, people talk about it as that she has breached the ministerial code. <laughs> <laughs> this is dreadful. It's incredible. Pearl God. clutching. But it points to Tory failure that it still exists. You know, mm. they are to blame in some way for the scalp hunting that they're enduring because they've allowed this pointless ministerial code mm. to, to run unchecked for so long. I mean, you said it was only introduced in 97. They're, they're running under Blairite rules and then being surprised when Blairite civil servants and media professionals are coming after them under the rules they created. And it was, it was last updated in 2010, mm -hmm. just before the Tories turned up. If they wanted to win the war, they should change the battles that they're fighting instead of just repeating the same fights that their enemies are setting the rules that they are falling into. Change, change them. Well, I, I mean, I'd like to see the, the howls of outrage when they do try to change it or something yeah, like that. Yeah. There you go. Um, we should talk briefly about Boris before we move on. Um, Partygate, I think it's. I think Partygate is in a slightly different order of magnitude in the sense that it, it was actually a serious scandal that Boris broke the rules, the rules that he imposed on the rest of us. But did we have to hear about it day in, day out? Did it have to be more forensically examined than the vast majority of crime scenes. You know, we know what we think about Boris breaking lockdown parties by now, but they're still, it's still getting milked somehow. Yeah, sure. I mean, there is righteous anger still over it. I'm sure there are people who, you know, God, is it now? three years ago were told they couldn't do X, Y, Z, and they still feel a sense of burning injustice and fury yeah. about what he was getting up to and all the rest of it with 
parties and cake and oh, actually I feel a bit ill talking about cake again. It was it was the most appalling period of my life when, when the, the whole news for a month was uh, what it, what counts as a party. Union don't, don't, Jack cake. But that's one of the most unforgivable things about party cakes. If you're going to break the rules, make them good. It was, right? yeah, it was, make yeah. these parties good. We all saw those photos. Chilled packaged sandwiches. Exactly. Oh, and like a tiny can of can Australia, of Australia. Yeah. in the afternoon. I yeah. can't look at Australia the same anymore. Never the same. Yeah. If you're going to break the rules, make it good. Like, it's like if you're going to have a scandal, it should involve some actually scandalous. So but they talk about it like it was some sure. kind of Saturnalian orgy. <laughs> sure, <laughs> like sure, sure. And, 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 and in some way, a little, a little bit of me does feel a sense of understanding when people do get so enraged because yeah. of what they were put through at the, the same time. But, but it has been so many years now yeah. and he's also no longer in power. They're holding him to account because he's, he handed over his diary, right? When he included, oh, I had some people around at Checkers. Um, now who cares? Mm. Now who cares? Because this man doesn't have the power anymore that you're trying to resist. There is no question of, is this person with terrible integrity governing us still? No, he's the, the bumbling XPM who's making money doing speeches. It frankly doesn't matter. And Tom, let's talk a bit about migration. Um, new figures came out um, today when we're recording it. Um, it's been built up quite a lot. I mean, the, in the end, 600,000, it's, it's a record, but it's a lot less than the press were uh, briefing. Uh, a lot of people have said, one of the reasons civil servants want to go over after Swella Braverman is because of her attitude to migration. I mean, what do you make of that? Well, it's an obvious problem for the Tories because of the fact that on the issue of migration, they have been saying one thing and doing another for basically the entire time that they've been in power. That's been obvious to anyone. They made the pledge for the tens of thousands. May maintained it. Boris didn't really believe in it, but did this kind of, we will control but not reduce, essentially. Um, and now Sunet's coming under a lot of pressure. And that is one of the things that has made the migration debate so torturous for so long. It's because you had an establishment of saying one thing and doing another. And I say that even from a pro-migration perspective, it inflamed the issue. Yeah. All that being said, I think what's been fascinating since Brexit is the fact that whilst there's always going to be a kind of background concern about migration numbers, particular acute concern about um, illegal migration, obviously, we've seen with the small boats, is that attitudes to immigration have softened since Brexit. People saying that this idea that control people didn't really care about that, they just wanted to reduce numbers is not quite true. And if you look at this particular selection of migration as well, in terms of the biggest groups within it, these are forms of migration that the vast majority of the British public are absolutely fine with. So the 200,000 from Ukraine, there's like one in 10 people think that there's been too many people come from Ukraine for obvious reasons. Uh, you take the uh, international students, which is again, the biggest single group, if you take the migration numbers, very few people, even generally anti-migration people like the like Migration Watch and UKIP have at various times said that those numbers should be taken out of the whole particular mix because they tend to go, generally speaking, although there's, you can understand why people are concerned about certain rules in terms of relatives and so on. Um, there's also the fact that, you know, a big chunk of these numbers of people coming into work in the care sector and the NHS and so on, which again, is a, it's a minority view to think that that's a problem, essentially. Um, so I think that when we're talking about this issue, obviously people are concerned about immigration, but it's, again, the picture is always a bit more mixed than some people would like to make out. Um, all that being said, I think the big, a big and gen genuine problem is the way in which migration is used to mask other problems, which I think has been clear, low pay in various sectors, and also the uh, growing kind of out of work um, the growing proportion of people on out-of-work benefits, which particularly under mental health reasons since lockdown, which the Tories don't want to talk about. They'd rather just, again, kind of mask it via these other means. So it's a, it's, it's a running sore for the Tories, not least because of their own dishonesty on this particular issue. But I think where Britain is at in terms of the migration debate isn't quite as straightforward in terms of being super anti yeah. as some people would like to. 
agree, but I know we're going to hear the other side. Yeah. Right. Well, Charlie, right. I thought it was interesting. Um, there's, a, there's a poll out today saying people trust Labour by, uh, on migration more by about 10 points. <laughs> not, because, not necessarily because they're <laughs> saying anything sure, people want to hear. But how, how could you be surprised? Because yeah. <laughs> there have been four manifestos of betrayal. And I, I think Tom probably slightly underestimates the anger I felt a lot around a lot of the country over those figures and the say one thing, do another on this issue. I think um, while you know, Brexit people were interested in control, not necessarily been reducing numbers, that theory has been kind of deployed quite a lot. I think fundamentally though, when people, the, the success of Brexit for a lot of people was associating Brexit with immigration. Okay, control was one thing, but actually reducing numbers and, and the, the final masterstroke of the Leave vote was to, to bring those two ideas together. And I think when Martin Lewis isn't in the paper every day and inflation isn't at 10%, you might find that migration kind of supersedes all those economic issues as the number one concern. What is so depressing about these numbers for me and the associated political crises is it feels as though politics is back where it was 15 years ago. We're talking about benefits claimants and migration being too high. Problems that the Tories campaigned on literally 15 years ago. Problems they committed to solve and quite demonstrably haven't done that in the slightest. Obviously events have happened. COVID means that there have been more people out of work, but they're in a, a great crisis on that. I mean, I feel like I'm, I'm waiting for Ian Duncan Smith and David Cameron to come and talk to me about these problems because these are issues that they took on so long ago. Um, now, 600,000 is a very big number as well for net migration. It's a record. And while a lot of them are students, I think when people- And refugees. And refugees, yeah. there are refugees, but 484,000 are from India. When people, when you ask people what kind of migration you want, you might want more care workers, but generally speaking, generally speaking people would want more people from similar demographic backgrounds to people in Britain and importing lots of people from South Asia who are on re reduced standards on salary and training. I don't think that's what most people in the country want. It's not, certainly not what they voted for either. So the standards are dropping and the entry opportunities are widening just at a time when people are asking for actually the opposite. And Tom, I mean, the, the other side of it is there is a sense that Britain is not, we're not building houses, yeah, yeah. public services are in disarray. Um, there is a broader sense that this is being used to fill gaps in some of these areas, but actually, you know, we are not, um, society has not been set up properly. We, we're failing our end of the bargain, so to speak. No, completely. And I think that's one of the things that makes this debate so complicated and so um, difficult because of the fact that, again, we have this issue whereby we're not building enough houses. Our infrastructure is creaking. Uh, we have massive problems in the labour market, particularly around social care, which is not an unskilled profession by yeah, any yeah. you know reasonable definition, but we're paying people an absolute pittance, you know, and it's interesting, you see the government calling on certain sectors, you know, up their wages in order to pay certain people better as well, they should, but at the same time, you know, they're presiding over the social care setup, essentially, they could easily try and raise, <laughs> try to push for higher wages if they could, and they don't. Um, so there is this problem by which kind of migration becomes a bit of a palliative. Same is true for the university sector. There are certain universities which are overly reliant on yeah. international students because they pay so much more in fees. So um, that's also a kind of problem. But at the same time, we are genuinely one of the most pro-migration 
nations in the world when it comes to particularly certain kind of cases in relation to certain sectors when the when the case for it is clear and when the case is actually made to them which very rarely happens in terms of migration policy people tend to be all right with it like i say in relation to social care and so on um i think that generally speaking one of the big problems that the pro-migration side such as we all have is that we exist within a politics of limits there's only so much you can do there's only so much you can build um, it's either the government's too crap to do it or it's environmentally unfriendly to be ambitious. Yeah. And in that context of a constant discussion about limits, it's very hard to land anything like a pro-migration argument. And I also think, just going back to Charlie's point, I do understand there's anger out there and there is concern about numbers. Of course there has been, but at the same time, it's not the, f it's not the full picture. And also opinion has shifted in a slightly different direction. And I think what would everyone would benefit from, surely, would be a more open discussion about this. One where when the public express their view that actually has political consequences as far as a government will change policy. And so we can actually have, we're not just kind of second guessing the electorate based on opinion polls, we can they can actually have some influence. If we get to that particular perspective, I think then we'll be in a much healthier state, but it does feel like to your point of being back in that mold where this is something which, Generally speaking, the ruling class is quite happy to keep out of public discussion because they're worried about the consequences of letting people talk about it. And surely if there's any lesson from the past few years is that we should completely avoid that kind of yeah. approach to things. It's obviously not good and it's obviously undemocratic. Thank you for listening to the Spike podcast. We're back every Friday and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.